Thank you for listening to this production from New Life Presbyterian Church. If you'd like to find out more, visit newlifepca.org. He is risen. I want to begin the message this morning by posing a question to you. How would you complete this phrase? I can't wait for blank. I'll give you a second to think about that. How would you complete that phrase? I can't wait for what? For summer? For school to be out? For graduation? For your wedding? Maybe it's just something as simple as I can't wait for some relief. I can't wait for a vacation. I can't wait for retirement. Maybe it's I can't wait to have grandchildren. Maybe it's something as simple as I can't wait for the next season of Stranger Things to begin on Netflix. Or maybe it's more immediate. Maybe it's I can't wait for Easter dinner in just a couple of hours. But I doubt that any of us had much problem completing that phrase because we use the phrase all the time. And that reveals the fact that we are forward-looking creatures. We're future-oriented. We have hopes for the future. But if you really stop and think about it, if you look far enough out on the horizon of the future, it seems that you reach a point where where there's the cessation of your future, the depletion of all of your days and the termination of any hope that you have. A day when you get sick, and you're not gonna get any better. There's gonna be the loss of health, the deterioration and decay of the body, and eventually death. I doubt that anybody filled the blank in with that because not only are we future-oriented, we're also life-oriented. We want to live, but how can we cling to any hope for the future if in reality we're all just running out of time? We're all just running out of time. Are we just closing our eyes to the reality that in the end there is no future and we have no hope? Well, the Apostle Paul would encourage us to look even further out on the horizon, beyond death, where we discover the hope of life. And he does that in Philippians chapter 3, beginning in verse 20, which is our text for this morning. So if you have your Bibles, you can open them to the third chapter of the book of Philippians. We will begin our reading in verse 20. And we'll conclude with the first verse of chapter 4. So just a few verses here uh, this morning. Philippians chapter 3, beginning in verse 20. If you don't happen to have a Bible with you this morning, you should be able to locate one in one of the chairs in front of you. Uh, And our reading is found on page 571 of those Bibles, 571. So if you have your place, let's stand for the reading of God's word this morning. Hear now the word of God, but our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. Therefore, my brothers, whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, stand firm thus in the Lord, my beloved. Our Lord, we pray that you would bless the reading and the preaching of your word now, for we ask it in Jesus' name, amen. You can be seated. 
Well, here's how the Apostle Paul would encourage all of us to complete this phrase. I can't wait for Jesus to get here. The Bible teaches that Jesus has come, and the Bible teaches that Jesus is coming again. This word await in verse 20 in the text that we read carries with it this idea of eager anticipation, eager longing, awaiting for Jesus our Savior to come again from heaven. Does that describe you? Are you eagerly longing for Jesus to return? If you are, then you have a future hope because the Bible teaches that death is not the end. There is life beyond the grave. When the dead are raised, our lost health is restored and severed relationships are rekindled. On this Easter morning, this text is pointing us to our resurrection hope. Specifically, Paul points us to the kingdom, the power, and the glory of our resurrection hope. And so we're going to consider these points this morning. The kingdom, the power, and the glory of our resurrection hope, although we'll consider them in inverse order, beginning with the glory of our resurrection hope. Paul expresses the glory of our resurrection hope in the first part of verse 21 when he declares that when Jesus returns, he will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body. Now, undoubtedly, this transformation that Paul is speaking of here has to do with our physical body. The physical body will be transformed. It's important for Christians to understand that when we die in the Lord and our souls go to heaven, that that disembodied existence is one of provisional blessing and joy in the presence of Jesus, but it is not our final state. That disembodied existence is not how God intends us to live for all eternity. God created us in the beginning to be embodied creatures, and we will exist in physical bodies in eternity in glory. That's the teaching of the scriptures. But not only will we exist in physical bodies, we will exist in these physical bodies. This, my physical body. That, your physical body. We will exist in those bodies. According to the Bible, the resurrection is not a reincarnation in a different body altogether. On Easter morning, the body that had been laid in the tomb was the same body that was risen from the dead. The tomb was empty. It's not a reincarnation. It's not just a spiritual resurrection. But at the same time, we need to acknowledge that the resurrection is not a mere resuscitation to the same physical state of decay and dissolution and death. For example, when Lazarus was raised from the dead by Jesus, he eventually died again. In a sense, he was risen, but he was resuscitated in the same body to undergo physical death once again. The Bible teaches that the resurrection is neither one of these things. It's not a reincarnation. It's not a resuscitation. Rather, it involves the body being transformed and glorified after the fashion of Jesus' resurrected body, transformed from what Paul describes as our present lowly state, our lowly bodies in the present condition, likely referring to just our bodies in their fallen state, disposed to sickness and disease, fatigue, weakness, temptation, decay, and death. But the glory of our resurrection hope is that when Jesus returns, he will transform these lowly bodies, disposed and liable to all of those things we just mentioned, to be like his glorious body. 
Now, we're not told much here in Philippians chapter 3 about what the nature of our resurrection bodies will be, what they'll be like. We get some cryptic hints of it in the gospel accounts with the post-resurrection appearances of Jesus. It's hard to know how much to conclude from those descriptions. And while Paul doesn't give us much detail here in Philippians, he does elaborate more in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. That's actually an extended treatment on the resurrection of the body. But in verses 42 through 44 of 1 Corinthians 15, Paul draws four contrasts between our present physical bodies and our resurrection bodies. Here's what he writes there. 1 Corinthians 15, 42 through 44. Paul writes, What is sown, which is Paul's image for the burial of the dead body, what is sown is perishable. What is raised is imperishable. It is sown in dishonor. It is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. It is sown a natural body. It is raised a spiritual body. So according to this passage, the present body is sown in perishability, if you will. Our bodies are perishable, our, our current physical bodies. They wear out and they tend inevitably toward decay and dissolution. Like those old dilapidated barns that are seen throughout farms in Indiana. They just fall apart, they go bad, they wear out. Our heart wears out, our kidneys wear out, our livers wear out, cells go bad and stop functioning properly. But Paul says that while these present physical bodies are perishable, they will be raised imperishable, immune to all decay and destruction. Imagine that, imperishable. I used to think that winter would not exist on the new earth in glory. Because of all just the unpleasant things that are associated with winter, everything dies. You can tell I'm not a fan of winter. But, but I'm not so sure now because all of those things that are so unpleasant will be removed from winter in glory because the cold won't sting or harm our bodies. There'll be no risk of traffic fatalities from hazardous road conditions or ice. I mean, can you imagine having the ability to take a car out on the interstate and go 190 miles an hour on icy conditions with no threat of harm to you or anybody else? Would that not be the most incredible game of bumper cars <laughs> that you could ever imagine? Or think about snow skiing off a cliff with a 500-foot drop-off with no possibility of injury. Who would not want to do that? So maybe there will be winter. That's all speculation. I don't know. But what we do know from what Paul's teaching in 1 Corinthians is that our bodies will be raised imperishable. He also says that our bodies are sown in dishonor. This is possibly a reference to the fact that physical death is a result of sin. The wages of sin is death. We die physically. Our bodies deteriorate and decay because of sin. And we, we, we may dress a corpse in a suit. We may surround the casket with flowers. But there's nothing that we can do to get rid of the shame associated with death. But there is something God can do. He can raise our bodies in glory. And again, we're not told precisely what the nature of this glory is. We're told by Paul in Philippians 3 
that our bodies will be like Christ's glorious body. They'll be raised in glory. Our culture seems to be obsessed with physical appearance and what our bodies look like. But if you have resurrection hope, rest in this. That when Jesus comes back, you'll have more than a mere beach body. You'll have more than just flat abs. Your body is going to be glorious. Glorious. And I don't mean that in the kind of sensual way our culture would talk about it. I mean it in the sense that our bodies will be like Jesus' glorious, resurrected body. That's what's in store for those who are looking to Jesus by faith. Currently, our bodies are sown in weakness. We experience the limitation to our strength. Our bodies need rest. They need sleep as a result of fatigue. Sometimes as we age and even as we near death, our bodies can become completely helpless, unable to perform even the most basic of physical tasks. But they will be raised in power. It will be characterized in power. And again, I don't know if this means if we'll be able to pick up cars over our head and toss them around. I don't know if this means that we can go without sleep in glory in our resurrection bodies. But every trace of weakness that characterizes our present existence in these bodies will vanish. No weakness. Be raised in power. Then finally, Paul says that what is sown a natural body will be raised a spiritual body. This becomes a little difficult to interpret. It shouldn't at all be taken to mean that Paul implies here that our resurrection bodies will be immaterial. I mean, how would that even be describing a body? It's not immaterial. So likely what Paul means here is that while these present bodies are marked by sin and the curse in the world in which we live and we bear those marks within our physical bodies, our resurrection bodies will be perfectly suited to the spiritual life and glory. Certainly they will be bodies though. I mean, Jesus' resurrection body could be seen, it could be touched. He ate meals. But our resurrection bodies will be perfectly suited to life and glory. But even with all these added details from 1 Corinthians 15, the exact nature of our resurrection bodies is still really beyond our comprehension. It's beyond our comprehension but I suggest that it's better than we can even begin to imagine. The resurrection bodies will be better than we can even imagine. What we do know from verse 21 is our resurrection bodies will be like Jesus' glorious resurrection body, and it will be accomplished by the power of our resurrection hope. So that's the second thing we can look at, the power of our resurrection hope. This power is mentioned in the last part of verse 21 when we're told that Jesus will transform our lowly bodies to be like his glorious body, by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. That power. And we read a little bit of this power throughout the Gospels in Jesus' life. His voice goes out and the wind and the waves are hushed. The blind see. The deaf hear. The lame walk. The lepers are cleansed. The diseased are healed. The demon-possessed are made well, demons are cast out, and the dead are raised. We see this display of power in Jesus' earthly ministry. But Jesus' resurrection confirms his power over death. That he has power in himself to conquer death. From ancient rituals of tribal medicine men to the quest for the fountain of youth to modern medical research, 
We try to find a way to conquer death. We're still trying to find a way to conquer death. But we can't. Death is too powerful for us. It was rumored in the forest that the lion was ill and he, he was requesting a visit from the fox in order to encourage him. And so when the fox arrived at the mouth of the lion's den, the lion's voice came out sounding very ill, inviting him in. But the fox is a very wily creature, and so he declined, saying, I see many footprints going into the cave, but I don't see any footprints coming out. And isn't that one of the questions that we long to know? Isn't that the question that we long to know? Is there anyone who can escape the clutches of the grave? Is there any way to break the bonds of death? Are there any footprints coming out from the tomb? And Easter's answer to that question is yes. One set of footprints. Jesus' footprints. Victorious over the grave. Risen from the dead. But here's the good news for us this Easter is that this Jesus who is risen from the dead leads all of those who trust in him by faith out of the grave with him when he returns. We have that resurrection hope, but it's only our risen Savior who can raise us from the dead and who can give us that resurrection hope by the power that enables him to subject all things to himself. You know, we might rightly have this kind of question. How can bodies that have been totally consumed by fire and reduced to dust and ashes be raised up again? If there really is a resurrection, how does that happen? Well, the Bible's answer to that is pretty simple. By the power that enables Jesus even to subject all things to himself. Even bodies that have been destroyed by fire reduced to dust and ashes somehow. Even bodies have been cremated and scattered provide no obstacle to the power of Jesus who has all power at his disposal. God knitted us together once and he can knit us together again. Reassembling the very particles of our flesh, bone, DNA, and, and blood if that's what he intends to do. That's the power of our resurrection hope. It resides in our risen Jesus. That's the power. We've seen the glory of our resurrection hope already. But there's also the kingdom of our resurrection hope that Paul mentions. He writes in verse 20 of our text, our citizenship is in heaven. Now the Philippians to whom he's writing would have understood this fairly well, this kind of imagery, because Philippi was a Roman colony located in Macedonia, which was Greek territory. But even though they lived in a Greek region, their names were recorded on the register as Roman citizens. They submitted to Roman magistrates. They lived according to Roman law. They adopted Roman kinds of dress and attire. And so in a similar way, Paul is reminding them that even though you live in Greek territory, you're Roman citizens, your ultimate citizenship is not even in the, in the Roman Empire. Your ultimate citizenship is in heaven. That's what, he, that's what he's reminding the Christians in Philippi of. Where is your citizenship ultimately? Where is your ultimate citizenship? Because you see, that is the most important question that you're facing this morning. Where is your citizenship? Because in this context, Paul is contrasting those whose citizenship is in heaven with those who don't have citizenship in heaven. Described as enemies of the cross in verse 18, just before the verses that we read. 
those who are giving themselves only to this present life that is passing away, those who set their minds only on earthly things, Paul tells us that their end is destruction in verse 19, just before our reading in verse 20. Their end is destruction. Stated another way, they have no future and they have no hope. Your future and your hope depends on your citizenship in heaven. How do you become a citizen of heaven? Well, similar to becoming a citizen of a place here when you're born, you have to be reborn to be a citizen of heaven. To have your citizenship in heaven, you have to be reborn. And how do you know if you're reborn? Well, here are some of the marks of being reborn. That you submit yourselves ultimately and give allegiance to Jesus as your Savior and your King. You acknowledge that you're a sinner and you trust in Him and what He has done alone through His life and resurrection for your own future and your hope. That's how you become a citizen of heaven. Trusting in Jesus as King and Redeemer. This is how Paul put it for himself also in Philippians chapter 3, verses 8 and 9. Paul writes, Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, that comes from my own good works, it comes through my moral efforts, it comes through my religious performance, not having a righteousness from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. A righteousness from God that depends on faith. That's what qualifies you for citizenship in heaven, but only that, the righteousness of God that comes by faith. That's Paul's only hope. That's my only hope. That's your only hope to be qualified as a citizen of heaven. So I ask all of you this question this morning. Have you put your faith in Jesus, crucified for sinners on Good Friday and risen from the dead on Easter morning? Are you trusting him for your salvation? If you're not, would you do that now? Would you turn from your sin and place your faith and trust in Jesus and what he has done for you and acknowledge him as your king and your redeemer? If you have already done that, if, you have, if you've already done that, know on the authority of God's word that your citizenship is in heaven. And that's not just something that's future. It's now, in the present. Paul doesn't say our citizenship will be in heaven. He says it is in heaven now. And that has implications. It means that in our lives as Christians, both individually and corporately, we ought to express, give expression to that heavenly citizenship in the way that we live in the power of the Holy Spirit before the watching world. These make a difference in how we live that our true citizenship is in heaven. This is what Jacques Ellul writes. He says, The Christian is the citizen of another kingdom, and it is thence that he derives his way of thinking, judging, and feeling. He stands up for the interests of his master. As an ambassador, champions the interests of his country. He may also be sent out as a spy to prepare for his Lord's victory from within, to create a nucleus in this world, 
to discover its secrets in order that the kingdom of God may break forth in splendor. He may be in this world, it is true, but all his ties are elsewhere. All his ties of thought, truth, and fidelity depend on his Lord. It's not our true home. This is not our true home. Another way to think about it is we're all here as Christians on work visas, temporary work visas to labor for God's kingdom and the extension of that kingdom while we're here on earth. That should not be understood to mean that we ignore the privileges and responsibilities we have in our earthly citizenship, but it does mean that our identity is centrally formed by our citizenship in heaven, belonging to King Jesus and belonging ultimately not to this age that's passing away, but to the age to come. And it means that the way we think, the way that we speak, the way that we act ought to be formed and shaped and determined by our ultimate citizenship in heaven, even as those things are shaped by our earthly citizenship. I mean, think about this. I speak English. I find the notion of arranged marriages strange. And I drive on the right-hand side of the road instead of the left-hand side of the road in large measure because I was born in the United States I'm a citizen of the United States. I speak, think, and act like someone from the United States in many, many ways. And in the same way, as God's people, we should speak with grace. We should think in terms of biblical categories of truth. Not the categories that the culture would give us, not in the categories that the media would give us, but we should think biblically when we think about the truth. And we should act in righteousness and purity. You know, we are called to form an outpost of the kingdom here on earth as the church. We are called to, we are called to form a colony of heaven, if you will, so that people who look at our lives can learn something about the life of heaven by looking at us. They could learn something of the life of heaven by looking at the church in the way that we live with a courageous commitment to the truth, the joy in our worship, through radical love, sacrificial compassion, our patience and endurance, our consistency in thanksgiving, the extension of forgiving grace to those who have wronged us, and through our genuine humility. And insofar as the world is failing to see that in the life of the church, we need to repent this morning. And on this Easter morning, we need to recommit ourselves to living as citizens of heaven by the power of the Holy Spirit. Because the world is only going to encounter that kingdom through our lives. And the world is only going to be invited to join that kingdom of life through our witness. The kingdom of our resurrection hope. In the end, it's the kingdom, the power, and the glory of our resurrection hope that allows us to stand firm, thus in the Lord, as Paul writes in the first verse of chapter 4. Stand firm in the Lord. How do we do that? By hope. We can stand firm because we know what's coming. Because we know how it ends. My favorite tennis player is Pete Sampras. Pete Sampras played his final match in the 2002 U.S. Open final against longtime rival Andre Agassi. 
Now, Pete had gone like two years without winning a tournament before that final. He'd actually lost in the final the two previous years in that U.S. Open. And I was so anxious about that match. I mean, he had to be playing Agassi, too. I couldn't, I couldn't watch it live. I had to record it. And it was on a Sunday afternoon. And so I went to evening service at church that Sunday afternoon. I returned home in the evening. And I found out that Sampras won. And so I sat down. And I watched that taped match through all of its ups and downs, all the swings and momentum, without a trace of anxiety or fear. My confidence was unshaken. My hope was certain, even when Pete lost the third set, because I already knew how it ended. I already knew what was coming. And in a very similar way, because of resurrection hope, we are able to stand firm through all of life's ups and downs, through all of its joys and sorrows, celebrations and disappointments, through sickness and in health. We can stand firm with a steady hope, eagerly looking forward and awaiting Jesus, our Savior from heaven, to come back. We can do all of that with a steady hope because we know how it ends. We know what's coming. I'm always struck at this time of year, if you get up early enough while it's still dark out, You'll hear birds singing. Birds sing while it's still dark out. Why do they do that? They know what's coming. They know the day is coming. So we can not only stand firm, no matter what's going on in your life right now, with resurrection hope, you can stand firm because you know what's coming. You know the day is coming. You know you have a future, an everlasting future. You know you have a hope, a certain hope, in the kingdom, the power, and the glory of resurrection hope through faith in your Lord Jesus, risen from the dead. So let's stand firm with a steady hope, and let's sing as we await the day when Jesus returns and clothes us with immortality. Let's pray. Our gracious Father in heaven, we thank you for the good news of the resurrection, that you have promised us a future and a hope through what Jesus has accomplished for sinners. Father, I pray that if there's anyone here this morning that doesn't know you, that has not placed faith in you, that by a supernatural work of your spirit right now, you would turn them from their sin, grant to them the gift of repentance and faith, and give them citizenship in heaven. I pray for those of us that are believers that you would renew in us a commitment to live as citizens of heaven. That we would acknowledge our true citizenship is not here, but it's in heaven and that we would live that way. And that you would enable us to stand firm in hope and sing with joy, knowing that our Savior Jesus has risen from the dead and he is coming again to transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen.